The passage that we're actually going to look at today is, is about prayer. Um, John 17 is where we are. Um, you can open up your Bibles there. This is uh, what is often called the high priestly prayer. That's probably what it says on the, the heading uh, before the passage in your Bible, high priestly prayer. This is the longest recorded uh, prayer that we have uh, Jesus praying in all of the scriptures. Um, It's really beautiful. Jesus has just given this long farewell uh, discourse, this conversation that he's had with his disciples. Um, He's about to go away. He's about to leave them. He's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. And what does he do? After he's had this conversation with his disciples, he takes this time and he prays for them. He lifts them up to the Lord in prayer. And there are just so many beautiful, significant things that we can pull out of this. But just right off the bat, man, just think about the, the fact, the reality that Jesus is praying for his disciples. What does that tell us about the importance of prayer? If Jesus took the time to pray, if Jesus needed to pray, which we often see throughout the scriptures, he slips away from the busyness, the work, the miracles. He gets away on his own to pray to the Father. What does that tell us about the importance of prayer? Jesus is showing us something. He's showing us that one of the most uh, loving and one of the most powerful things we can actually do for the people that we love is to pray for them. Right? I've said it before, but man, what what is prayer? When we love somebody, We will want for them and we will ask God to do in their lives what only God can do, right? That's what prayer is. And Jesus is also showing us, um, he's showing us something powerful about um, just why we pray. Um, Think about when you pray for somebody, right? More often than not, when you're praying for somebody, you're asking God to do for them what you think is the most important thing in their life for God to do for them. Right? When you're praying, it's a glimpse into your heart. It's a glimpse into what you care about most because you're praying what you think is the most important thing to pray for that person. But even as human beings, when we do that, we don't always get it right, right? Because we're we're imperfect. So we pray things that we think are most important, but we don't always nail it, right? Like I was, I was praying pretty recently with a brand new Christian and he'd just gone through a breakup and he's just, he's, I'm like, hey, let's pray for your ex because there's some anger there. And he's like, yeah, I just pray Lord that um, if this will teach her a lesson that like something like kind of bad, but not that bad would happen to her on her drive home today. I'm just like, bro, (laughs) I don't think that's what God wants, but okay. Right? We don't always get it right, but Jesus is the perfect son of God. He prays perfectly. And so when we see Jesus praying, we are getting a perfect glimpse into what God's will is for our lives because that's what Jesus is praying the Father would do in our lives. Does that make sense? We, we get this window into what God wants most for us because Jesus is praying it. And it's just this beautiful thing. Something, something a mentor said to me years ago is that the closest distance between two people is prayer. Right? So if you want to grow closer to someone, improve your relationship with somebody, pray for them and pray with them. Call God to, to just welcome him into this space between the two of you. And if you want to grow closer to God, you want your relationship with God to improve, prayer. Prayer is the way that you do it. So Jesus prays and he's going to pray. We're going to go through the first 19 verses of this. I'll save the second half uh, for Lee. But um, another thing that's just so fascinating and so significant about this is that, man, if you're anything like me, you, you try to follow Jesus and you try to do what you know he wants you to do, but you drop the ball, right? You don't always get it right. You mess it up. And if you're anything like me, I, I can get really stuck in this kind of performance mindset where when I'm really dropping the ball and I'm not living up to what I know God wants me to do and who I know he wants me to be, I can start to get this picture of God where he's just like cross-armed, just scowling, disappointed at me, just like, oh man, I let God down again. And he's like, yeah, you kind of did. You let me down. But what we see is that Jesus is actually for us. Just think about that. Jesus is praying for us. He's, he's, he's cheering us on. Because what just happened, Jesus just told the disciples that in his greatest hour of need, they're going to be scattered. They're all going to bail out. They're going to leave him hanging. 
And his last words to them in the last passage we just looked at were, hey, I'm telling you these things so that in me, your peace, you may, you may find peace. You might have peace. Because in this world, you're going to have tribulation and trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus is praying for us. He wants the best for you. You're on the same team as Jesus. You're moving in the same direction. He's not scowling at you, mad at you when you mess it up. He's actually cheering you on. He's praying for you that you would walk in faithfulness and in the power and in the presence of God. Um, So we're going to see Jesus start uh, by praying for himself. And then in this prayer, he's going to move to pray for his 11 disciples that are remaining. And then he's going to move to pray for all future disciples, the future church. And he's also going to pray for the world, those who don't yet know him. So it's beautiful. In this prayer, we got Jesus praying for himself. We got him praying for the disciples and all who are not yet disciples, but who are going to be disciples. So if you're here and you're following Jesus, Jesus is praying for you. If you're here and you're still exploring faith and you're not sure where you land on this stuff, Jesus is praying for you. That you would come to see who he is, that he is Lord, that he loves you, that he died for you, and that he wants relationship with you. He's praying for you. And it's not just this one time. We actually read in Hebrews 7 uh, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We read that in Romans as well, that Jesus is actually at the right hand of the Father right now, not just this one time. He is right now praying for us. That's amazing. If that doesn't fill you with courage, nothing will. All right, and Jesus is going to show us uh, in this passage as well, when he starts praying for his disciples, we're going to pick out three main things. Jesus is going to say, he's going to show us, and he's actually going to pray three things about uh, disciples of his. He's going to pray that disciples are saved. He's going to pray that disciples are set apart. And he's going to pray that disciples are sent right? Three S's for you. There you go. If you're a note taker, right? Disciples are saved. Disciples are set apart. Disciples are sent back into the world. All right, let's read this prayer together and we're going to pick these things out. And my prayer for you guys today uh, is that as we look at these things and we see this, this heart of Jesus for us, these things that he is praying, my hope is that we see some of these things and we go, man, this is what God so badly wants for me. Am I walking in obedience to this? Am I actually walking in step with God's will for my life in these things? Let's read it together. John 17. Starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is what Jesus prays. Let's just walk through it, guys. When Jesus had spoken these words, what are these words? These are the words that he just said to the disciples in his farewell conversation with them. Remember, he said, you're going to have trouble in the world, but take heart. Okay, there's joy in me. There's peace in me. The world is going to kick you around. The world is going to hate you. In fact, if you're actually walking in obedience to Jesus, the world is not going to like it. If you're preaching the gospel, if you're living out the gospel, the world is going to hate you, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die, and then he's about to rise again and defeat death. He's saying to his disciples, hey, look, you are going to face some really difficult things. This is going to be hard, but you're following the one who has defeated death. So no matter what you face in this life, even if it kills you, death cannot kill you, right? You're literally invincible, right? And this is going to happen. We're going to see in Acts, the disciples are going to go out filled with the spirit and they're going to preach the gospel and the authorities are going to take them in and beat them nearly to death and tell them, stop preaching that Jesus is Lord. And they're going to go, we can't. And they're going to go out and keep doing it and get taken in again and beaten nearly to death again and sent back out. This happens over and over and over again. What Jesus is saying is, hey, this is what you're going to face if you're walking with me, if you're following me, if you're living for me in a broken world that hates me. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus has already shown them by his miracles, by the way that he lives. He's walked on water. He's multiplied bread to feed thousands. He's opened blind eyes. He's healed crippled legs and made them walk. I have overcome the world. There is no force in the world. There is no power. There is no authority greater than the authority of Jesus in the world, not even death. Jesus has just reassured his disciples of this. Okay, that even when trials come your way, you can do what James says and count it all as joy when trials come your way, brothers, because what trials create perseverance. Perseverance creates character. And God is using that character to complete you. What he began, he will bring to completion. He's just said these things to him and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Look at what Jesus does. Look at what he's showing us. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus is about to go through what is literally the most spiritually, physically, and emotionally painful thing that any one could ever go through in the history of time. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed by those who are closest to him. He's about to be abandoned by his best friends. He's about to go to the cross, be whipped, beaten, spat on, have his skin ripped off of his body, and then have his hands and feet nailed to a cross. He's about to be crucified, and he's about to experience the wrath of God against all sin in the world. He's about to go to the most trying thing of his life. And what does he do? He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus is showing us the importance of prayer, guys. He's about to go to the most difficult thing that he's ever going to do, and he lifts up his eyes. It's like the psalm says, I lift my eyes because that is where my help comes from. It's like it says in Hebrews 12, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When trials come our way, Jesus is showing us that what, whatever you're facing, whatever is in front of you, you need to lift your eyes to heaven, right? Because what do we do? What's our natural impulse? When we know something's coming, something difficult, what do we do? We either look back in regret at how we've lived. We look forward at what's coming in fear, or we look down in guilt and shame and fear, and we hide. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Look up. The most difficult thing is coming toward him, and he lifts his eyes to heaven. Prayer, guys, needs to not be our last resort. Prayer needs to be our first response. 
And Jesus is showing us that the greater, the more important, the more difficult the thing is that is coming in your life, the more you need to be praying. Right? When Martin Luther was in the midst of the, of the, um, the Protestant Reformation where they broke away from the Catholic Church and he was getting um, just ripped to shreds by the Roman Catholics and he was in the midst of all these debates and these trials and these difficulties and he was doing a million different things and people said, Martin, how do you, how do you have the time to do what you do and how are you so, so close to God and hearing the voice of God? He, he, he said, the things I have to face today are so difficult and I am so busy that I can't afford not to spend three hours in prayer before I start the day. Right? The bigger the thing is coming at you, the more you need to be in prayer. Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He also says in verse four, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus is going to talk about, he's still praying for himself. He's saying, Father, glorify me and I'm going to glorify you. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, to glorify something or someone, to put it really simply, to glorify is to represent someone accurately for who they truly are. To represent somebody or something accurately for who they truly are. What Jesus is saying is, Father, I represented you perfectly on this earth. We read in John chapter one that Jesus came from the Father to manifest the presence of God, to show the heart of God on the earth, to show us in a way that we would understand who God truly is. Jesus is saying, Father, I did that perfectly. I glorified you on the earth. Verse six, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So we, we, we look at Jesus, we look at his life, we look at what he did, and he is claiming that he perfectly represented God in what, in what he did. So when we look at Jesus, we're meant to see the heart of God, right? So when, when we see Jesus doing what he did, it's not just a bunch of fun stories. When we see Jesus um, go out of his way and sit with the woman at the well, who's had five failed marriages and is looking for a drink from the well and he sits with her and he offers her living water. He says, I know what you're thirsty for truly in the depths of your soul and only I can give it to you. We are seeing the heart of God. That God meets people in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin. He doesn't shame them and beat them over the head with it. He offers them what they're truly looking for. That's the heart of God. When we see Jesus walk on water to meet the disciples in the boat in the midst of a storm that they think is gonna kill them, We don't just go, whoa, cool, Jesus can walk on water. We're seeing the heart of God, that he is a God who meets us in the midst of our storm and who doesn't necessarily stop the storm, but who gets us exactly where we need to go. When we see Jesus multiply the bread and the fishes to feed 5,000, we're not just seeing a cool miracle, we're seeing the heart of God. We're seeing a God who meets hungry people and gives them bread for their souls because man cannot live off bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're seeing the heart of God. And Jesus is saying in the hour, he's saying the hour has come, glorify your son. The hour, we've seen that uh, all throughout John, the hour. Uh, you see it at the wedding in, in Cana where um, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, the, the party's out of wine, Jesus help. And he goes, woman, not the way you want to speak to your mom, but he goes, woman, my hour has not yet come. And we see that all throughout John. And what that means, the hour that he's referring to is the hour of the cross. It's the hour when he's going to go and be crucified for the sins of the world. And this is crazy. Jesus flips our worldly idea of glory upside down when he says this. The hour has come. Glorify your son. What is glorious about a man being crucified on a cross? Well, Jesus is saying, by glorifying God, I'm representing the heart of God perfectly. So by glorify, by the hour of the cross, what does that mean? It means that the heart of God, who he is, his character, is most fully and completely and perfectly on display on the cross. 
When we think of glory in a worldly sense, when, when I, if I want you to glorify me, that means I want you to talk about me. I want you to lift me up. I want you to make me look good. It's all about me, 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 me. Jesus is saying, this is who God is. This is who God is. On the cross, that is his glory. God is most clearly and powerfully displayed by him pouring out his life for the good of the world. That's revolutionary. Jesus is glorified, not by us like going, yep, give, us, give him everything, give him everything. It's all about you, Jesus. That is now how we glorify them. But he's saying the heart of God is most clearly displayed in his sacrifice on the cross. And for us people who are trying to emulate the heart of God and know who God is and live like God, that's why he continually says throughout the scriptures that God is love. And just as God loved us, so we are to love the world by pouring out our lives for the good of the world because that is how God is most clearly displayed. He talks about glory. And so Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying for himself. And then he pivots and starts to pray for his disciples. And here we're going to get into what Jesus is praying, what he wants, what his heart is for his disciples. And so first point, if you're taking notes, is that eternal... Oh, sorry, that's the second point. (laughs) Uh, Disciples of Jesus are saved. Disciples of Jesus are saved. So look at verse 2. Jesus says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Did you catch that? This is eternal life, that they know you. What do you think about when you think about eternal life? Right? Because I think we've kind of got this picture of eternal life that it starts when we die. Right? Eternal life is heaven. It's life forever in heaven that starts the moment that we stop breathing in this world. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus frames eternal life differently. This is eternal life, that they know you. Eternal life is a relationship. Eternal life does not start the moment that you die. Eternal life starts the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's at that moment that God supernaturally moves you spiritually from death to life. It's that moment that you start a relationship with God, and that's what eternal life is. It's a relationship with God. It's intimacy. It's experience. It's actually encountering God and living and walking with God in relationship in the day-to-day of your life. Right? And I think we, can, um, we have this response, I think, sometimes to talking about experiencing God, right? to actually experiencing him, having encounters with Jesus, especially because we're Mennonite, right? Hey, we can be honest about that, right? When people put their hands up in worship, that freaks us out a little bit, right? We don't like to talk about encounter that much, and I actually get that. I totally get that because we have these weird stories, and we have some really weird churches doing some really weird things out there. I definitely get that. I've experienced that before. I went and visited one of my buddies uh, at a church down in the States, and um, I had a, a really jacked up shoulder at that point. I had torn all the cartilage in it. It was messed up. And these two guys walk up to me in the church and they go, hey man, um, your shoulder's injured. Can we, can we pray for you? I think God wants to heal, heal you. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And so I, I close my eyes. And I'm waiting for the guy to pray to me. And all I hear is, pew, 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 pew. And I open my eyes. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? I thought you were going to pray for me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I got my Holy Spirit gun. I'm shooting your shoulder right now. God said he wants to heal me through your, my Holy Spirit gun. And he's just, he's got it pointed at my shoulder going, pew, 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 pew. And then another guy comes up to me and starts doing this. He goes, I'm like, bro, are you praying for me? What are you doing? He's like, I'm highlighting you. Now when you go into worship, the Holy Spirit's going to see you and he's going to bless you. And I'm like, okay, man. And I walk in and then two more guys come up to me and my buddy and they stop us and they go, God has a word for you right now. You need to quit your job and you need to, uh, you're going to make it huge in business. And he looks at my buddy who's never touched a musical instrument in his life and he goes, quit your job. God wants to use you to be a famous musician. My friend's like, what are you talking about? And then we left and never looked back. 
right? Because that's the thing, right? It's all about experience. It's all about encounter. And I'm like, dude, the Holy Spirit doesn't need you to do all these theatrics if he wants to do something. God is God. And so I get it. We, we can be a little bit squeamish about encounter, about the Holy Spirit, about all these things that we see as weird. But what did Jesus say? Eternal life is knowing God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God relationally, right? And we need to not overcorrect so much that we don't actually have a living walk with God. It's in the day-to-day. It's in the little things. It's hearing God's voice. It's speaking to God. It's letting him change me and shape me and mold me. Is there any life in your walk with God? Are you just cognitively knowing things about him? Constantly, Jesus pushes back against that. There's a time in John where he goes to the Pharisees who know their Bibles really well. And he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in the scriptures you have life, but you neglect to realize that the scriptures are about me. It's in me, a person that you have eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God, knowing Jesus in relationship. Are you actually walking with God in relationship? Are you stopping? Are you creating space to welcome him in to the little spaces? Welcome him in to your work, into your conversations, into your relationships, letting him speak to you, hearing him in the little things. That's the first thing. Disciples of Jesus are saved, and that doesn't just mean knowing about God cognitively. That means knowing God personally, knowing Jesus Christ. The second thing that we can notice here is that disciples of Jesus are set apart Jump ahead. There's a lot more things that Jesus uh, says and prays in this, in this prayer. And I would encourage you guys to actually go home and, and read it because we don't have time to, to hit everything. There's so much in here. Jesus prays for unity. He prays for joy. Um, unity is going to be next week. That's kind of the main focus of next week's, the second half of the prayer. So Leah's going to hit that. So I'm not going to hit that. Uh, Jesus also prays that the disciples will have joy. That's something that Andy hit really beautifully a couple weeks ago as well. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, but I want to just highlight a couple more things here. This is really important for us to notice. Look at verse 15. Jump ahead to verse 15. Jesus says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Let that hit you. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus is literally praying to the Father that we as Christians are not taken out of the world. I actually think that a ton of us are praying the exact opposite of that or we're at least hoping the exact opposite of that, right? Because the world is hard. The world is tough. There's some really dark things about the world and about the culture that we don't want to be a part of. And that makes sense. That's true. But the solution is not that we get taken out of the world, right? Look at the culture. Look at the broken parts of the culture. Think about the things in the culture that you think are bad, that you think are evil, that you want to have no part of. What will happen if all the Christians just ran away from the culture, just ran away from the world? How how does that manifest? That manifests in Christians making separate little silos, separate little bomb shelters, separate from the world so that they don't have to have any contact with anybody in the world, any contact with people who aren't Christians, who don't believe like them, think like them, live like them. That's how you get Christian soccer leagues. You get Christian bingo nights. You get Christian gyms. That's the thing, Christian gyms. So you don't have to sweat with all the pagans, right? God forbid you should sweat next to somebody who doesn't love Jesus. Get their evil sweat on you. Right? That's the thing. There's Christian hair salons, Christian barbers. Man, that's nonsense. And here's, let me just, I've prayed with so many people who have come to me just so concerned and so bothered in the depths of their soul asking me, can you pray that God will give me a job where I'm around all Christians? Because in my job right now, I don't really know many Christians. And my answer is no. (laughs) Pick a better prayer. 
right? Jesus is not praying that. My prayer for those people is praise God that he's put you in a job filled with the Holy Spirit where you're around people who don't yet know him. If you are praying that prayer right now, just know Jesus is praying the opposite. All right. He's not praying, take them out of the world. He specifically prays. And man, this is Jesus' last prayer to the Father before he goes away. These are some of the most important things. And he chooses to stop and take time to specifically pray that disciples of Jesus are not taken out of the world because he knows this is going to be a challenge for us. And immediately, immediately you see it happen. Even in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they were sectarian. They were people who, who fully believed that they needed to separate from, the, from the, the pagan world, from the Greek culture, because it was going to contaminate them. Nothing to do with them. Stay away from the impure thing. Right? And you see it in the early church, the desert fathers, they ran away from the culture to go and live in the desert in Egypt so they didn't have to be close to the evil culture. Then you see it in monasteries, in the monastic period. Monks who just create these monasteries up on these mountains and hills away from the big, bad, evil culture so they don't have to rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus. That's not what Jesus is praying. He knows this is a challenge for us. But in fact, he prays, Father, I'm sending them into the world. He's praying the opposite. Don't take them out. And that's probably why Jesus, even in his time, was accused by the religious people of being a glutton and a sinner. Right? We read this in Luke 7. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's because Jesus sat around a table and opened a bottle of wine and ate bread and ate dinner with people who were not like him, who didn't believe and think like him, who were from a different worldview than him. Because he came to bring light to dark places. How can you do that if light just runs away from the dark? You can't. Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew's gospel, we have it recorded that the church, the disciples of Jesus are supposed to be salt and light. Salt is what you rub into meat to keep it from going bad, to keep it from rotting. You're supposed to be light in the world and you're supposed to be salt into a dying culture to keep it from dying, to be a little source of life in the midst of it. Right? And how? How can you keep the meat from going bad if you just separate from the meat? Jesus' goal for us is not separation. It is sanctification. His goal for us is not separation from the world. It is sanctification within the world. Um, a theologian and a pastor named John Stott, he's in the Anglican church, brilliant man. Um, he has this beautiful quote. I think we've got it. Maybe. Yeah, it says this. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it going bad. And when the society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? So if you look at the culture right now, in whatever, media, in movies, in music, in politics, whatever, pick your avenue, and you see that it's going bad, the question is not, that the thing to do is not to piously throw up our hands in horror and go, ah, oh, the world's so evil, let it go to hell. The question to ask is, where's the salt, man? Jesus is asking, where's the salt? I sent my Holy Spirit to fill them. I gave my life so that they would be new and set apart 
and I sent them out into the world, not so that they would cower from the world, so that they'd go into it. If you look at culture and you think to yourself, man, culture is so evil. Okay, fine. Don't demonize it and slag on it and tweet about it and Facebook about it. Create a better culture. Move into the culture and create. Make art. Work as a Christian. Live as a Christian in the midst of the culture. Don't run away from it. Live inside the culture. Live within it in a way that is set apart and that brings glory to God and that shines light in a dark space. We need to get over this idea that that contact with the world equals contamination. It doesn't. Contact does not equal contamination. Okay, there's a real danger in separating ourselves from the world so much that we become uh, what John, in, uh, John Stott in another uh, book, he writes about rabbit hole Christians. He says, don't be a rabbit hole Christian that just lives in a safe little hole, pops his head up to see, make sure there's no non-Christians around, and then scurries off to the next little rabbit hole, jumps in it, pops his head up, make sure, okay, no non-Christians around, boom, scurry to the next one. Don't do that. Think about your life. Man, we can, we can fill our lives and our schedules so full of really good, positive Christian things that we have no room and no margin and no space in our lives to actually be around people who think and live and believe differently than us, right? If you're signed up for 17 different Bible studies and 17 different prayer groups and 17 different worship things where you're sure and you're hoping that there's no non-Christians there, and you have no time and no room in your schedule, you don't even, you're not even around non-Christians, and you just put your head down at work and silo yourself off, there's something wrong with that. Look at your schedule. Look at your life. Look at your social life. Is there any room? Or are you, just, are you running from the world? Maybe if it, it's not even intentional, but maybe it's just happened. You've set up your life in such a way that there's, you're, you're just separate. You're in a rabbit hole. Jesus doesn't pray for that. He says, don't take them out of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Um, so what's the solution then? Because that's one ditch that we can fall into. The other ditch, the other harmful thing on the other side of that is that we actually do start to compromise, right? And I think that's the fear, is that if we're immersed in the culture, we're embedded in the culture that is truly really dark in a lot of ways, that we will start to compromise, that we'll start to look and sound and live exactly like the culture. And that is a problem. Jesus' solution to that, not separation. His solution to that is sanctification. What does he say? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. His solution is sanctification. Sanctification, that's a big theology word. Um, they teach you in, uh, in seminary, when you're preparing to be a pastor, they teach you don't use words like eschatology and sanctification because they're big theology words, and then um, people who didn't go to Bible college won't understand what you're talking about. And I actually agree with that. But then a couple days ago, I was in a Starbucks, and this girl in front of me, who was probably no more than like seven years old, uh, I listened to her order. And she ordered like a venti, triple hot, triple sweet, half sweet, but triple sweet, double espresso, venti caramel macchiato. And I was like, I think we can learn what sanctification means. And also, Lord, help this little girl whose heart is going to explode out of her body. But we can learn what sanctification means, right? Sanctification, I think we tend to think of it as um, growing in purity, right? Growing in holiness, growing to be more and more like Jesus and how we look and sound and, and live. And that is part of it. Right, so we get this picture of sanctification. It's like, uh, think about a blacksmith with a sword. Okay, the, the way that you get a really pure and really sharp weapon is that you continually put it into the fire. You bring it out, put it on a, a thing, an anvil, and you hammer it. 
You hammer it, hammer it, hammer it. You put it back in the fire, heat it up, bring it out, hammer it. That's the image of sanctification in one sense, is that we are, we have impurities. We have things about us, the way that we think, the way that we, uh, things that are in our heart, proclivities that we have to sin. And the life of following Jesus, as we sit under, what did Jesus say? His word, your word is truth. We, as we sit under the Bible, as we go and read the Bible ourselves, and we welcome the Holy Spirit into that process, he applies the words of Scripture to us, and he, like we, we learned about a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit sheds light on the sin in our lives and the things in our lives, and, uh, and we get conviction, right? And it's this process where it's, it's painful, right? It's painful and it's unpleasant, but we are a sword getting put in the fire, taken out, hammered, and these impurities start to get, get out of our lives, out of our hearts, out of our minds. It's like a, God is like a, a guy with a hammer and a chisel, right? And we're the clay, and he's chipping away parts of our lives slowly but surely that need to go, things that are not like him, sanctification. That's one meaning of it, and that is true. But the more um, commonly used meaning in the scriptures for sanctification, it just means set apart. It's the same word as consecrated or holy. It literally means set apart for special use by God, right? And so this idea of growing in sanctification, yes, it's growing in purity. It's growing in in moral God-likeness. But think of sanctification, your process of sanctification through this lens. Are you, as you walk with God and grow in the ways of the Lord, are you gradually more and more and more set apart for God to use? That's what Jesus prays for us, that they would be set apart, sanctified. So in your walk with God, think about your heart, think about your life, think about your schedule, all the things in your life. Are you growing more and more and more set apart for God to use? Are you growing in such a way that gradually, slowly, no longer are you looking at your faith as how can God serve me? And how can God give me what I want? And is it becoming more and more about how can my life be poured out and used by God for the good of the world, exactly how he wants to use me? Not about me, it's about him. Set apart. Are you growing in set apartness? That will only happen as, like Jesus prays for us, we diligently sit under the word of God. Your word is truth. That's why this, when it comes to life and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, it will, man, it will do something in your heart. It'll do something in your life like nothing else. It's not just a textbook. It's not just some good advice about how to live. As we welcome the Holy Spirit in, and this is part of uh, knowing Christ and not just knowing about him, that's part of it, man. It's like uh, it's like on the Emmaus Road in, in Luke's gospel, there's this story of where Jesus comes alongside of these two people who are talking about scripture and he explains how all the scriptures point to him and then he leaves and they look at each other and go, our hearts were burning inside of us when Jesus opened the scriptures to us. That's supposed to be our daily reality. When you go to read this, the truth of God, the word of God, ask God to join you and he will. Ask Jesus to meet you there and he will and he will live in your mind, in your heart, in such a way that your heart will burn within you. Jesus prays, sanctify them. Don't take them out of the world. Sanctify them. And then this is the last thing. Disciples of Jesus are sent. Okay, so disciples of Jesus are saved, okay, for a relationship with God, knowing Jesus. Disciples of Jesus are set apart in the world, and they are actually sent into the world. So it's not falling back from the world. It's not hiding from the world. It's not even neutral. We are actively sent into the world. It's forward momentum, right? Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. I'm setting you apart by my word. I'm sanctifying you, making you more like me, and then I'm sending you back in, okay? Because there's work to do. Because yes, the culture is broken. Yes, people are hurting. People are dying without knowing Jesus. And that is exactly why the salt needs to go out into the world. That is exactly why the rabbits can't hide in the rabbit holes. We need to get out there sent. 
Okay, mission is not an optional activity. It is a core part of our identity. Say that again. Mission is not an optional activity. It is a core part of our identity. Here's what I mean by that. We are made in the image of a missional sending God. Think about who God is, the missio Dei, the mission of God. We read over 40 times in John's gospel that God sends. God the Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus sends the Spirit to fill us and empower us. And then here, and again in John uh, chapter 20, Jesus is going to say, when I breathe out my Holy Spirit onto you, I'm sending you, my disciples, out into the world. We are a sent people. It's not something we do. It's not an add-on activity if we have time. It is who we are at the core of our being because we're made in the image of ascending missional God. So the church, the people of God, disciples of Jesus, this is not an optional activity for us. This is core to who we are. And how this needs to change, we need to stop thinking about uh, the things in our life, the places and the people that God has given us. We need to stop thinking about those spaces as places that we have to be, but we don't really want to be and that we actually want to run away from. And we need to start thinking about those people and those places as specific places that God has sent us. We need to start thinking about the the unique wiring and gifting and things that God has given us and the way that he has made you. That's not an accident. That's actually on purpose because God is preparing you and sending you out into a space that other people aren't going to reach. A dark space where there is no light, right? What does this look like? This looks like preaching the gospel. Yes, proclaiming it, but you might say, hey, I'm not somebody that can just like get up and preach or articulate the gospel really clearly. I don't have all the scripture memorized. I'm not a pastor or a preacher or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. Yes, we are to proclaim the gospel. We are to share the truth about Jesus. But for most of us, this is going to look like living questionably. This is going to look like living in the world in a way that is set apart. Right? The way that the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire in the fourth century was actually turned upside down by Christianity was by Christians moving toward the pain and looking different in the world. There's this beautiful story in, a, in the city of Caesarea, which is one of the main cities in the Roman Empire in the fourth century. Pagan city. But it was turned upside down by the gospel. How? Destitute, poor, a horrible plague rolls in. Everybody starts flooding out of the city. The Christians flooded in. They took care of the dying. They provided help to the sick. They took care of children who were discarded and unwanted in the streets. Where it was common in Roman culture for a man to have three wives, one for sex, one for babies, one for housework, the Christians came along and said, no, 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 there's a different way. You get one wife and she's not your servant. Actually, in fact, the husband's job is to lay down his life and die and serve his wife. That flipped the Roman Empire upside down. The emperor at the time, I think his name is Julian, he writes this thing historically that talks about how the Christians in the culture actually put the pagan people to shame because they cared more about not just the Christians, but the non-Christian people in the culture more than the actual government and the non-Christian people cared about their own people. That's what it looks like to be sent. I don't know what that looks like for you. Only you can figure out what that looks like for you. Right? I have a, a good friend of mine who's a professional soccer player that I played with at Trinity. He's so much better than me. Okay, but he is wired and gifted. He's in one of the top leagues. He actually just played for Canada in the World Cup. And I was just talking to him when he got back from Qatar. And he said to me, man, I'm in this space. And the team goes out and they take their wedding rings off. And they go and hook up and they do all these things. They go out to the clubs to do this and that. Like, what do I do about this? And I'm like, dude, praise God he sent you into that space. Because he's out there trying to be a light in that space in a way that I never will be able to. Right? I got a good buddy who's a professional bodybuilder as well, a competitor. 
I will never be able to be in that space that he is. Right? My wife, Sarah, she's a researcher. She's a, a doctor of forensic psychology. You're like, why did she marry you? <laughs> I married up. Who else married up in here? <laughs> yeah, you did, Jason. Right? Way out of my league. But she's in the world of academics and research and psychology, and she's getting doors open for her to be in these spaces that I will never be able to go. What is it for you? How has God wired you? That's how he's sending you. What are the people in your life? Who are they? That's where God's sending you. What are the spaces in your life? That's where he's sending you. Jesus does not pray that we would be taken out of the world, guys. He actually prays, Father, I'm sending them in, filled with my spirit because I've overcome the world. I'm sending them in. Guys, eternity is too long. Life is too short. The stakes are too high to hide in the rabbit hole. We need to get out in the world, in the culture. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we admit that this is hard for us. We admit that we want to run and hide. We admit that we need courage because it's easier to shrink away from the world than to actually go out and be in it. And Lord, we don't want to compromise. We want to live set apart. We want to live sanctified in the truth. And Lord, we want to know you. We want to really know you, not just know about you. We want to walk with you in intimacy and in relationship. We want to experience you and encounter you. As we worship God, this is about encountering you, coming face to face with you. As we pray, we want to come face to face with you, living God. Lord, and just as you are praying that we are saved, that we know you, that we are set apart, and that we're sent into the world, Lord, I just pray for us as a people, us as a church. Fill us up and send us out. Open doors, Lord. Give us courage. Let us not compromise and look and live like the world, but let us live within it in a way that is set apart, a way that is questionable, a way that brings about the questions of the world where they ask, what do you have that I don't have? How do I get that life? And we'd be ready or to point them to the life that is only found in you. Or make us like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.